Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. Well, good morning, sober warriors. It is now December 29th. Oh my gosh, we have almost made it to the end of the year. Can you believe it? What fuckery. Uh, If you have listened to this podcast before, you will know that both Lisa and I are the two sober chicks. And when we can't get together, which has only happened this year because of COVID, we do our own individual, quote, shot glasses of recovery. Uh, And if you've been listening, you know that I do this end of year exercise. I think it's particularly pertinent right now at this time of year. So what in light of the year we've just had, I should say. So what I do is on New Year's, I'm a calendar girl, uh, not as in posing for calendars, although I wouldn't turn that gig down, but in terms of scheduling everything. And that is really helpful to my type A personality. But at the end of the year, when I do this reflection exercise, I go through my calendar and I look at every single thing that I have done in the year that is ending. And it's a really good reminder to me that no matter how bad I thought the year was, so many miracles happened. So much goodness happened. For me, 2020 was my best year yet. I got married. It was a year that I had decided in 2019 I would no longer go through with fear and anxiety. Um, And I really didn't. Now that helped by a short stint, about a one-year stint on an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication, which I am now weaned completely off just because I felt like I was in a position that I could do that. Um, But it saved me. And now I know if I ever go through a hard time in my life, I do have a medication that works for me. The tapering off was interesting, as anyone will probably attest to, and um, the wisdom I gained from that is how important it is to support your body and your mind when you're coming off of a brain chemistry altering drug and to be patient with those side effects because it takes a long time. Um, I am just two months out from weaning off and I can say confidently now that like the, I don't want to call them brain zaps because they don't feel like electricity, but people who have had brain zaps may understand what I'm talking about. Those are gone now and I was very well supported by a regimen that my husband gave to me, which included like herbs and water and fish oils and charcoal and So I'm really grateful because if not for him, I just would have gone off of the medication with no support. And I think I would have had a really difficult time. Anyways, 2020 was a great year for me. So there's not going to be a lot of lamenting just by the way I chose to live in light of circumstances that I could not control, i.e. COVID. So, But during those years that are hard, I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, I celebrated another year of recovery. Oh yeah, I made it to another birthday. Oh yeah, I went back to school. Oh yeah, I met my husband. Oh yeah, so-and-so survived their operation. So-and-so had a baby. Um, 
I had a really great summer full of sunshine and bike riding. I got to dig into myself and during COVID and read and reflect and look at what no longer worked for me and look at what my concept of God was. There is so much to be grateful for. And it sounds cheesy and it sounds corny, but without gratitude, people, we have nothing. We have nothing. Because gratitude is where hope comes from. And the lack of hope is what depression is. So I thought for today, I would continue on in reading from the stories in the second half of the big book. Because the first, is it 156 pages? 165 pages. Actually, the first 164 pages of the big book, which is only like a third of the book, is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the rest are stories from the first 100, I think, people um, who recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body via their alcoholism or drug addiction or behavioral addiction, they share their stories. So we happen to be at story nine. Are we at story nine? Wow, we're at story nine. This one is called The Keys of the Kingdom and it starts on page 268. Actually, let's just start this the way we start our meetings. So let's have a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer and then I'll start reading. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The Keys of the Kingdom This worldly lady helped to develop AA in Chicago and thus passed her keys to many. A little more than 15 years ago, through a long and calamitous series of shattering experiences, I found myself being helplessly propelled toward destruction. I was without power to change the course my life had taken. How I had arrived at this tragic impasse, I could not have explained to anyone. I was 33 years old and my life was spent. I was caught in a cycle of alcohol and seduction that was proving inescapable, inescapable and consciousness had become intolerable. I was a product of the post-war prohibition era of the Roaring Twenties, that age of the flapper and the it girl, speakeasies and the hip flask, the boyish bob and the drugstore cowboy, John Held Jr. and F. Scott Fitzgerald, all generously sprinkled with a patent pseudo-sophistication. To be sure, this had been a dizzy and confused interval, but most everyone else I knew had emerged from it with both feet on the ground and a fair amount of adult maturity. Nor could I blame my dilemma on my childhood environment. I couldn't have chosen more loving and conscientious parents. I was given every advantage in a well-ordered home. I had the best schools, summer camps, resort vacations, and travel. Every reasonable desire was the possible of attainment for me. I was strong and healthy and quite athletic. I experienced some of the pleasure of social drinking when I was 16. I definitely liked everything about alcohol, the taste, the effects, and I realize now that a drink did something for me or to me that was different from the way it affected others. It wasn't long before any party without drinks was a dud for me. I was married at 20, had two children, and was divorced at 23. 
my broken home and broken heart fanned my smoldering self-pity into a fair-sized bonfire, and this kept me well supplied with reasons for having another drink and then another. At 25, I had developed an alcoholic problem. I began making the rounds of the doctors in the hope that one of them might find some cure for my accumulating ailments, preferably something that could be removed surgically. Side note, I am friends with a man who, this is, I want to get this right. He went into a hospital and knew that all of his issues were because of his drinking. But when they told him it was because of something else, and that he had to have an organ removed in order to protect his alcoholism, he fucking did it. He let them remove an organ knowing full well that that wasn't the problem. I mean, that is protecting your disease, let me tell you. Of course, the doctors found nothing. Just an unstable woman, undisciplined, poorly adjusted, and filled with nameless fears. Most of them prescribed sedatives and advised rest and moderation. Between the ages of 25 and 30, I tried everything. I moved a thousand miles away from home to Chicago and a new environment. I studied art. I desperately endeavored to create an interest in many things, in a new place among people. Nothing worked. My drinking habits increased in spite of my struggle for control. I tried the beer diet, the wine diet, timing, measuring, and spacing of drinks. I tried the mixed, unmixed, drinking only when happy, only when depressed, and still, by the time I was 30 years old, I was being pushed around by a compulsion to drink that was completely beyond my control. I couldn't stop drinking. I would hang on to sobriety for short intervals, but there would come the tide of an overpowering necessity to drink. And as I was engulfed in it, I felt such a sense of panic that I really believed I would die if I didn't get that drink inside. This is my story I'm telling you. Um, For those of us that struggle and have struggled with that overpowering necessity to drink, what a great way to say it. It's true. It is beyond any rational thought at all. It is not a choice when we are in that place. Needless to say, this was not pleasurable drinking. I had long since given up any pretense of the social cocktail hour. This was drinking in sheer desperation, alone and locked behind my own door, alone in the relative safety of my home because I knew I dare not risk the danger of blacking out in some public place or at the wheel of a car. I could no longer gauge my capacity and it might be the second or the tenth drink that would erase my consciousness. The next three years saw in me sanitariums, once in a 10-day coma from which I very nearly did not recover, in and out of hospitals or confined at home with day and night nurses. By now I wanted to die but had lost the courage even to take my life. I was trapped and for the life of me I did not know how or why this had happened to me. And all the while, my fear fed a growing conviction that before long, it would be necessary for me to put away in some institution. People didn't behave this way outside of an asylum. I had heart sickness, shame, and fear bordering on panic and no complete escape any longer except in oblivion. 
Certainly now, anyone would have agreed that only a miracle could prevent my final breakdown. But how does one get a prescription for a miracle? For about one year prior to this time, there was one doctor who had continued to struggle with me. He had tried everything from having me attend daily mass at 6 a.m. to performing the most menial labor for his charity patients. Bless him. Why he bothered with me as long as he did, I shall never know, for he knew there was no answer for me in medicine, and he, like all doctors of his day, had been taught that the alcoholic was incurable and should be ignored. Doctors were advised to attend patients who could be benefited by medicine. With the alcoholic, they could only give temporary relief, and in the last stages, not even that. It was a waste of the doctor's time and the patient's money. Nevertheless, there were a few doctors who saw alcoholism as a disease and felt that the alcoholic was a victim of something over which he had no control. They had a hunch that there must be an answer for these apparently hopeless ones somewhere. Fortunately for me, my doctor was one of the enlightened. And then, in the spring of 1939, a very remarkable book was rolled off a New York press with the title Alcoholics Anonymous. However, due to financial difficulties, the whole printing was for a while held up, and the book received no publicity, nor, of course, was it available in the stores, even if one knew it existed. Can you imagine? Thank God I was born in this time. But somehow, like, by the way, if you don't have a big book or a 12 and 12, guess what? You can read it for free online at aa.org. But somehow my good doctor heard of this book and he also learned a little about the people responsible for its publication. He sent to New York for a copy and after reading it, he tucked it under his arm and called on me. That call marked the turning point in my life. Until now, I had never been told that I was an alcoholic. Few doctors will tell a hopeless patient that there is no answer for him or for her. But this day, my doctor gave it to me straight. He said, people like you are well known to the medical profession. Every doctor gets his quota of alcoholic patients. Some of us struggle with these people because we know that they are really very sick, but we also know that short of some miracle, we are not going to help them except temporarily, and they will inevitably get worse and worse until one of two things happens. Either they die of acute alcoholism or they develop wet brains and have to be put away permanently. Wet brains, by the way, are when you're so brain damaged by alcohol that you look like a crazy person. You don't make any sense. It's really a horrific way to go, and it's irreversible. And I see this happening very close in my family right now, like immediate family, and it's horrifying. Um, I'll leave it at that. He further explained that alcohol was no respecter of sex or background, but that most of the alcoholics he had encountered had better than average minds and abilities. Of course, we're smarter than everyone else. Come on, we all know that. He said that the alcoholics seemed to possess a native acuteness and usually excelled in their fields, regardless of environmental or educational advantages. By the way, that's what kills a lot of alcoholics. It's being too fucking smart for their own good. If we try to figure this shit out and make sense of it, we might as well just dig our own graves. It has to come from acceptance. Why am I an alcoholic? I don't fucking know. Why does someone have cancer? Why does someone get AIDS? 
Why do some people suffer from depression and anxiety? Why are some people sociopaths? Why do some people have a shopping addiction and other people have a cocaine addiction? Why are some babies born very handy, uh, physically or mentally handicapped? Why do tornadoes happen in a street where one house gets hit and where one doesn't? Why are we able to grow babies in our bodies? Why are there... I mean, why are some men bald? Like, what is the gene that causes that? And how come that person gets it, but not that one? How come I was born white and not black? How come I was born a woman and not a man? I don't know. You have to accept that if you are an addict of any kind, you will never understand why. I once heard a speaker say, um, uh, genetics loads the gun, circumstance pulls the trigger. Maybe you are genetically predisposed. I am. But I can tell you that I know just as many people who come from an alcoholic family that don't in recovery. So if you're that kind of smart, please stop questioning. Just start accepting. The end. We watch the alcoholic performing in a position of responsibility. And we know that because he is drinking heavily and daily, he has cut his capacities by 50%. And still he seems able to do a satisfactory job. And we wonder how much further this man could go if his alcoholic problem could be removed and he could throw 100% of his abilities into action. But of course, he continued, eventually the the alcoholic loses all of his capacities as his disease gets progressively worse. And this is a tragedy that is painful to watch. The disintegration of a sound mind and body. Then he told me there was a handful of people. I keep wanting to say this and I'm just going to say it. This person in my family, clearly I'm still thinking about it, is so furious at the non-mask wearing world that he will go around and blame people for the spread of COVID and for killing his family and for shutting down his business if he doesn't see them wearing a mask, not even knowing if it's a reason like a medical exemption as to why they can't. And he's fucking drinking himself to death. This man's not going to die of COVID. He's going to die of an alcohol-related death. And I also know another man who smokes four packs of cigarettes a day and does the same deal, yelling at people, blaming people for COVID and the spread of COVID and how he's going to die. And he's got this emphysema hacking cough and refuses to take responsibility for his own health. And that is something that's driving me nuts lately. Like, let's look at ourselves first and stop blaming other people. And by the way, let's stop shaming people. Whether or not you're an anti-masker, an anti-vaxxer, a pro-masker, a pro-vaxxer, let's mind our own fucking business. Clean house, like we're taught in Alcoholics Anonymous, And stop judging people, shaming people, yelling at people. Like we are all just doing our best for where we're at. My views do not line up with a lot of my friends' views, but I love them and I love my family. My cousin's chat, so I have a, a, I call it a cousin's chat, but it's really a sibling's chat, which includes my brother and his girlfriend, my cousin, my sister, and myself. And 
It got so ugly yesterday. Why? Because of COVID. And listen, politics are the same thing. It's ripping families apart right now. The time where we should be coming together and loving on each other. We're yelling at each other because this person doesn't follow this rule. This person voted for that person. Like, please, please do not let these things tear you away from people that love you. And guess who the people are that love you? They're the people that check on you. Some of these people may or may not remember your birthday. They spend time with you. They're interested in what you're doing. They ask you questions like, how are you? They listen to you and encourage dialogue and feelings. They do thoughtful things for you. I have decided going into 2021 that I'm getting rid of my personal Instagram because the people that are in my life are the people that check on me and they'll know what's going on. And I cannot think of one thing that I have seen on social media where I'm like, man, that made my life better. Yes, there's memes that make me laugh, but I can, I already have that relationship with friends of mine. Hi, Amanda, I love you. I have that already. And I just felt like I was bringing people, now that I'm married, I'm much more protective of my life and my details. And I was bringing people into places in my life where they most of them probably didn't care, but like, what did it matter? What did it matter that I was walking and saw a beautiful creek with my husband and then stopped holding his hand so I could take a picture to share it with who? Someone other than who I'm with? Like, it just dawned on me for me personally. It's not a judgment against anyone else. I just looked at it with a sober lens and went, this isn't contributing anything to my life. I also happen to be premenopausal and my mental and emotional and physical energy is very low and I cannot keep expending it on shit that doesn't fucking matter to me. And it just, it's ceased to matter in the last two months. And so I'm shutting that down. I'm also letting go of relationships where I'm pulling the weight I've had a really good long look. And I think this has been true for a lot of people during COVID. You've really seen who cares and who appreciates the expenditure of your emotional energy and and the giving and receiving of friendship and seeing who's, uh, what relationships am I anxious about? The ones that I'm checking in on them all the time, the ones where If I didn't call or if I didn't reach out, I wouldn't hear from them. The ones where I'm not celebrated for who I am or supported in what I do. Like I'm just getting rid. I call it uh, simplifying and honing. I'm just getting rid of all of the slack because I can't afford going forward to risk my mental health, not only for myself, but now for a what my being a wife and having a husband, but my vocation, which happens to be preaching, preaching the word of the Lord. I can't afford to have things knock me off course because I've just made a decision not to. Okay. (laughs) Think I should pay you guys for therapy. All right. Uh, Then he told me there was a handful of people in Akron and New York who had worked out a technique for arresting their alcoholism. He asked me to read the book Alcoholics Anonymous and then he wanted me to talk with a man who was experiencing success with his own arrestment. This man could tell me more. I stayed up all night reading that book. For me, it was a wonderful experience. It explained so much I had not understood about myself. 
And best of all, it promised recovery if I would do a few simple things and be willing to have the desire to drink removed. Here was hope. Maybe I could find my way out of this agonizing existence. Perhaps I could find freedom and peace and be able once again to call my soul my own. The next day I received a visit from Mr. T, a recovered alcoholic. I don't know what sort of person I was expecting, but I was very agreeably surprised to find Mr. T, a poised, intelligent, well-groomed, and mannered gentleman, and black with a mohawk and chains around his neck. Just kidding. I was immediately impressed with his graciousness and charm. He put me at ease with his first few words. Looking at him, I found it hard to believe he had ever been as I was then. However, as he unfolded his story for me, I could not help but believe him. In describing his suffering, his fears, his many years of groping for some answer to that which always seemed to remain unanswerable, he could have been describing me, and nothing short of experience and knowledge could have afforded him that much insight. He had been dry for two and a half years and had been maintaining his contact with a group of recovered alcoholics in Akron. Contact with this group was extremely important to him. He told me that eventually he hoped such a group would develop in the Chicago area, but that so far this had not been started. He thought it would be helpful for me to visit the Akron group and meet many like himself. By this time, with the doctor's explanation, the revelations contained in the book, and the hope-inspiring interview with Mr. T, I was ready and willing to go to the ends of the earth, if that's what it took for me to find what these people had. That is what it takes, by the way. So I went to Akron, and also to Cleveland, and I met more recovered alcoholics. I saw in these people a quality of peace and serenity that I knew I must have for myself. Not only were they at peace with themselves, but they were getting a kick out of life, such as one seldom encounters, except in the very young. They seemed to have all the ingredients for successful living, philosophy, faith, a sense of humor. They could laugh at themselves. Clear-cut objectives of appreciation, and most especially appreciation and sympathetic understanding for their fellow man. Nothing in their lives took precedence over their response to a call from help from some alcoholic in need. They would travel miles and stay up all night with someone they had never laid eyes on before and think nothing of it. Far from expecting praise for their deeds, they claimed the performance a privilege and insisted that they invariably received more than they gave. Extraordinary people. I didn't dare hope I might find for myself all that these people had found. But if I could acquire some small part of their intriguing quality of living and sobriety, that would be enough. Shortly after, I returned to Chicago, my doctor, encouraged by the results of my contact with AA, sent us two more of his alcoholic patients. By the latter part of September 1939, we had a nucleus of six and held our first official group meeting. I had a tough pull back to normal health. It had been so many years since I had not relied on some artificial crutch, either alcohol or sedatives. Letting go of everything at once was both painful and terrifying. I could never have accomplished this alone. It took the help, understanding, and wonderful companionship that was given so freely to me by my ex-alky friends, this and the program of recovery embodied in the 12 Steps. In learning to practice these steps in my daily living, 
I began to acquire faith and a philosophy to live by. Whole new vistas were opened up for me, new avenues of experience to be explored, and life began to take on color and interest. In time, I found myself looking forward to each new day with pleasurable anticipation. AA is not a plan for recovery that can be finished and done with. It is a way of life, and the challenge contained in its principles is great enough to keep any human being striving for as long as he lives. We do not, cannot outgrow this plan. As arrested alcoholics, we must have a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. Keeping one foot in front of the other is essential for maintaining our arrestment. Others may idle in a retrogressive groove without too much danger, but retrogression can spell death for us. However, this isn't as rough as it sounds, as we do become grateful for the necessity that makes us toe the line, and we find that we are compensated for a consistent effort by the countless dividends we receive. I will just say that whatever energy you put into recovery, you get a thousandfold dividends. It's absolutely true. A complete change takes place in our approach to life. Where we used to run from responsibility, we find ourselves accepting it with gratitude that we can successfully shoulder it. Instead of wanting to escape some perplexing problem, we experience the thrill of challenge and the opportunity it affords for another application of AA techniques, and we find ourselves tackling it with surprising vigor. The last 15 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I have had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments because that is life, but also I have known a great deal of joy and a peace that is the handmaiden of an inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends and, with my AA friends, an unusual quality of fellowship. For to these people, I am truly related. Oh, I'm going to cry. First, through mutual pain and despair, and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by, working together, sharing our experiences with one another, and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding, and love, without strings, without obligation, we acquire relationships that are unique and priceless. There is no more aloneness with that awful ache so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever reach it. That ache is gone and never need return again. Now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. In return for a bottle and a hangover, we have been given the keys of the kingdom. That is now my new favorite story. And that is the last story in part one. Part two begins in the next podcast. If I don't talk to you before the beginning of 2021, I want to encourage you that if you're still here, there is a reason. It may even just be for yourself to be your own friend. It may be for you just to say one kind word to another person. But I promise you, it's not for no reason that you're here and that you can live a better life. And if you're already living a good life, you can still live a better life. I know so many people who were pulled out of the pit of despair of their alcoholism and their addiction and are living the most amazing lives right now. 
not without tragedy, like this story said, not without heartache, not without sickness, but living a big peace. You can live a peaceful life. You can, I promise you. So hang in there. If you need support, you can email Lisa and or I at the email two sober chicks at gmail.com. It's the number two. You can find us on Twitter and the gram at two sober chicks. We think about you guys a lot. We talk about you a lot. We pray for you a lot and we're here for you. So you're never alone. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you again real soon. 